who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 73. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Great show for you folks this week. A few noteworthy items first. One, we've been nominated for the Parsec Awards, which are given annually to recognize excellence in speculative fiction podcasting. We're sending in a sample to be judged, and we'd like your feedback and what to send in. Essentially, we'd like to know what your favorite three shows were between episodes 12 and 62 in terms of story and production. You can post your thoughts on a topic we've created in our discussion forums on the website www.drabblecast.org. The Parsecs are going on Labor Day weekend in Atlanta at DragonCon. DragonCon is pretty interesting. Luke, Kendall, and I are all going this year, and we've got some plans in the works— Big plans. More on that later. We hope some of you listeners will be there to partake in the glorious festivities with us. And lastly, if you haven't subscribed already to the Super Animal Deathmatch Competition podcast, you need to go to our website, drabblecast.org, click on Megabeasts at the top, and get in on that mess. After you've subscribed, follow the voting link to cast your vote on which animals you want to see compete in the preliminary round. You've got till Sunday. The top four contenders so far for round one seem to be a squid, a velociraptor, wasp, and a tanuki. What's a tanuki, you may ask? Well, do a quick Google search. It's a raccoon with big balls. How does it stand a chance against a velociraptor? Well, because it has big balls, my friend. It has big balls. No, remember these animals are going to be enhanced to make the theoretical fight and debate livelier. The wasp might be 50 pounds and have Chinese throwing stars or something. Our first podcast should air next week. But enough about that. On to this week's Drabble. 
Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble story is called Clearing the Palette by Michael Young. Michael says he's your stereotypical, reclusive, world-traveling, vegetarian, mountain man, techie engineer who enjoys strange stories. We aired Michael's Drabble, A Matter of Meditation, in episode 67 before Mike Resnick's story, Malish, and are happy to have him back again. Baby diligently doodled on an etch-a-sketch. His drawings were pure chaos, like unkempt balls of yarn. I worked in the kitchen while he quietly played. Later, I glanced over and was astonished to behold a vivid picture. He had drawn our family at dinner in exquisite detail. It was a perfect creation. As I approached, Baby upended the etch-a-sketch, clearing the palette. I asked him why. He shrugged and started chaotic doodling again. Suddenly I felt nauseous. The ground trembled. I looked around in horror. Everything was coming apart. I ran to the window and witnessed the stars slowly dissolving. Our feature story this week is called All In by Peter Atwood. Peter is a writer and editor living in Ottawa, Canada, where he grew up and returned to after living in Toronto, Seoul, and Cairo. This story is simultaneously appearing in the current issue of Weird Tales, which is a great magazine of gothic fantasy, sci-fi, and horror that I highly recommend. Check them out at weirdtales.net. Our story is mostly read to you by one of my favorite voices in podcasting, the distinctly morose and engaging Mr. Ben Phillips. Ben is the editor of the weekly horror podcast, Pseudopod, another place that I highly recommend you check out. Pseudopod does a great job of delivering all the many shades of horror. It's not all blood and guts, although there is plenty of that. They really run the gamut from spooky to comedy to downright poignant. Check them out at pseudopod.org. So without further ado, All In by Peter Atwood. The panel slid open with a shunk. Two eyes peered out. Diagnosis? The voice asked. I could smell the cigarette smoke thick behind the closed door. I nodded. Show me, said the voice. I pulled the creased papers from my shirt pocket unfolded them against my chest with my free hand, and held them out so that the St. Jerome's Infirmary logo was clearly visible at the top. The eyes took in the sealed ice cream tub hanging from my left hand, then studied the top sheet of the stapled pages long enough to read it twice. The panel shut. I counted my heartbeats as I waited in the dim corridor. The locks on the other side turned. The door creaked open wide enough for me to slip through. Inside, four players sat around a low wooden table, its veneer cracked and yellow. A matching cloud of yellow cigarette smoke ghosted the visored lamp above. The eyes behind the door, it turned out, belonged to a gaunt face that fronted a bald head on a tall gangly frame. He now sat at a tiny metal desk against the wall and extended a hand to take my paperwork. 
Under the desk was a row of cold boxes, two vacuum cases with handles, two more silver-insulated containers, and a large, wide-mouthed thermos. Beside them, a small butcher's scale. Baldy laid the papers on his desk and lifted his chin toward my tub. Anything in there? From the center of the room, I heard the riffle of cards. I shook my head. Baldy looked at me with surprise. It's empty, I said, handing him the tub. A white vapor stream from the dry ice inside escaped through a crack in the lid and slid down the side like an evaporating snake. Baldy set the tub under the desk with the other containers, then flipped to the last page of my stapled paperwork. Everyone here is lung cancer, he commented. I shrugged. He examined the signature above my doctor's typed name with the aid of a double-jointed finger pressing the paper to the desk. Satisfied? He asked me how much. You tell me, I said. I stretched my hands out, palms up. He examined my right hand closely, then pushed my sleeves up to my elbows. Hmm, he said, and counted out 23 round white chips from a tray. I took them in two short stacks, and he waved me to the table. At the back of the room, a man in a wrinkled tan suit was signing a clipboard held out by a man in green cottons. They stood by a door with a small square window. Tan suit handed back the pen and watched me. His jacket hung from his shoulders, limp with misery. A green tie was stuffed halfway into its pocket. He looked as if he had some shame to hide but was too curious to turn away. His eyes stayed on me until I reached the table, scraped back an empty chair, and sat. I coughed. <clears throat> Hello? In response, a card slid toward me. A second slid past to the player on my left. The dealer continued in silence until a pair of cards lay face down in front of each of us. The four others all added up with a clatter of chips, and I added mine. It was two weeks since my doctor had recited my diagnosis to me, my feet dangling in their socks as I listened from his paper-lined exam table. It was sadly common. You hit a certain age, and everyone knows someone with an expiry date. Two months, two years, two weeks. But the shock of looking into your doctor's pale brown eyes, your senses numb as he delivers death's personal ETA. You sweat, your stomach hollows out. The cool hospital air brushed my ankles. I took a breath. So what happens next? I asked him. It's like being let into a club. The chemical acronyms, the therapy nicknames, the test results shorthands. And after, all these passwords open new corridors of conversation. My blood work is up. My husband's serum count is down. They bumped my sister to category 4B. Therapy group comfort offered over coffee. It only took a few days before I heard the stories. Mary's father gave his leg for his wife. Well, from the knee down. She's past remission now. Fully healed. The medical profession doesn't talk about the treatment. It came from Argentina, but the scientist was from Mumbai, or the other way around. The incubation was developed in Korea. A virid is populated, distilled, and injected. It can take two or three tries, but success is 80-plus percent. It's the donation that's problematic. The virid incubates in living flesh and marrow, enough to make the whole process unethical. 
donors must be genetically distant. I looked at the player to my left. He was a mountain of a man in a short-sleeved avocado print shirt. He stretched forward to stub his butt out against the table. His fat arm jiggled. The pile of chips in front of him would easily last till morning. He inspected his cards and dropped them to the table. His cigarette pack lay on the table beside his cards, and after shaking out a fresh white smoke, he slid the carton in my direction. No thanks, I said. I'm leukemia. Well, of that don't beat shit, he said and cupped his lighter to the cigarette between his lips. The others looked at me. To the left of Fatso was a bearded, narrow-eyed man in his fifties. Vertical wrinkles creased the middle of his forehead. Beside him, a player hid behind 80s Ray-Bans as if this were some Vegas casino. No one was here for the thrill. We rotting players imagine we keep our desperation close to our chest, but all we do is parcel out despair in round pieces of plastic. On my right sat a hunched, gray-haired lady, so thin shadows cast in the hollow of her collarbone. She coughed and sucked on a cigarette. This was a lung patient game. They're the only ones who don't care about smoking. I was here because I needed a new table, desperately. My luck had been bad all week. I lifted the corner of my two cards. Diamonds, a jack and a queen. When the betting came around to me, I called and tossed my one chip in. Fatso beside me did the same. Mr. Beard was dealing this hand. He picked up the deck and peeled off three cards, laying them out face up. Two low spades and the nine of diamonds. The betting went around again non-committally. I managed to stay in with only one more chip at risk. Mr. Beard pulled off another card and turned it up. Eight of diamonds. My stomach did a leap. Ray-Bans reached forward with a pair of chips and said, Two. The lady to my right tossed her cards forward. I fold, she wheezed, then pounded a fist against her chest until she hacked out a long cough. I resisted the urge to check my cards again. I counted four chips from my pile and tossed them forward. Raise. Leukemia boy is here to play. Fatso deadpanned. The two others still in, grunted. I kept my expression relaxed and stared at my two cards still face down before me. If the final card came up diamonds, I was sitting on a flush. A ten, and I was holding the miracle of a straight flush. Fatso turned up the corners of his cards again and considered my sixteen remaining chips as if there were some math involved he hadn't encountered before. You in? Ray-Bans asked him finally. Of course I'm in. I'm one treatment from getting clear and clean. I'm not leaving here without my pound of flesh. A heavy thunk and a sharp yell came from behind the square windowed door. I looked around. Tan suit and clipboard were gone. Fatso laughed. <laughs> Sounds like my first eight ounces are being prepared. For a moment, we all sat listening to the quiet whimpering coming from the next room. Just place your bet, Ray-Bans said. I'm gonna raise us all another six. Fatso separated out six chips with his chubby index finger and slid them into the pot. Mr. Beard folded, but Ray-Bans stayed in. I considered the pile in the center of the table. I turned in my chair and looked back at my tub, leaking CO2 under the desk. It was empty, a scary thud. If anyone had been paying attention when I came in, they would know. I had the unsettling impression Fatso would take special delight in the fact that I was wearing all my collateral on my bones. The thing is, when leukemia strikes late in life, it's swift. How much time did I have left? Your doctor sees your lips tremble and his eyes soften. He stresses that it's not precise. 
could be more, could be less. Some people live, who knows? But all you remember is that first hard and fast date. Mine was up tomorrow. I pushed my remaining chips into the pot. I'm all in. The dealer picked up the deck and lifted the top card. He paused to note it for himself before laying it down. It was the four of clubs. My teeth clenched. I had nothing. Not even a pair. Not even, not even shit. Well, that's a kick in the sweet bits. <laughs> Fatso chuckled. I stared at the chips in the pot, going from one to another, trying to count the 23 specific chips that were mine. The back door opened, and Clipboard escorted Tan's suit back through the room. We all watched. His steps were unsteady. His suit jacket was draped over his left arm, supported in a sling, and at the end of his arm, a round bundle of white gauze was growing a red stain. Clipboard helped him out the door with the locks and then closed it behind. The sound of the latch brought us back to the table. I'm out, said Ray Bans. I looked at Fatso. His high forehead was greasy. His eyebrows overhung his bloodshot eyes. You're all in, aren't you? I ignored him. I needed to see his cards right then. I had to know. What have you got? Show us what you got. He shrugged, leaned back with a hand behind his ear, and stretched the other forward to flip over his cards. I stared at them. I looked at mine and then looked back, disbelieving. A two of diamonds and a jack of spades. Fatso had nothing. Jack, I... <laughs> I leaned forward, my ass lifting right off the chair, and flipped my two precious, wonderful, sweet little cards over. The last one to show was the Queen of Diamonds, her Mona Lisa lips smiling serenely for everyone to see. Queen High, I said. I won. I've got Queen High. I immediately gathered the pot with both hands, scraping the chips toward me. I was laughing out loud and couldn't stop. I'm cashing out, I declared. They all looked at me as if I was stupid. The pot was nothing substantial, just a modest beginning to a promising night. But for me, it represented a big enough chunk to get my first treatment incubating. Like I said, luck had been turning on me all week. I wasn't going to risk losing this pot or anything else again. I carried my chips to the desk, grinning. Clipboard was standing beside Baldy, going over papers. Cashing out? Baldy asked. I nodded and handed him my winnings. He returned them to his tray, counting carefully. Clipboard retrieved my ice cream tub and one of the insulated containers from under the desk and placed them on the floor, the scale between. He gets eleven ounces, Baldy announced. Eleven, Clipboard repeated, pulling a pair of latex gloves from his green cotton pants and stretching them over his fingers with a snap. A cloudy bath of dry ice overflowed the lip of my tub when he lifted the lid. He packed the CO2 to the sides, making a pocket inside. Then he unzipped the insulation on the larger container and unclasped the lid, releasing a gasp of pressurized air. Someone shuffled cards back at the table, and Fatso laughed. Clipboard reached inside the container and clattered a handful of bluish-pink digits onto the metal pan of the scale. Three fingers, a thumb, four toes, and something I couldn't identify. A wrist? Frozen and stubby. Their bloodied ends red like the lipstick stain on a half-consumed cigarette. Here, you have to sign this, Baldy said. I stepped to the desk and I signed where he showed me, holding the pen carefully. He returned my papers and I slipped them into my pocket. 
Baldy had finished measuring out my salvation and held my tub up for me, its lid in place, still leaking CO2. You should fix that crack with something. Don't worry, I said. I'm going right to the clinic with this. I took it from him, gripping the handle as securely as I could with the two remaining fingers of my right hand. Well, that was our story. Reminds me of our old Monday night poker tournament, the one I used to do with editor Luke. It's a good thing that we never played for body parts. If we did, then Luke, on a good night, would have nothing left but his characteristic afro and maybe one testicle if he was lucky. In situations like that, you've really got no choice but to go ball in. Anyway, feedback for episode 68, The Wiggly People by Yuji Foster. People gobbled up this story faster than a disabled kid eats uncle face. Silly Seraph said, All I can say is, yes, yes, yes. I'm not sure why, but stories with cannibalistic, mentally disturbed children seem to be my cup of tea. An excellent tale. Tasty Cake said, This story was deliciously disturbing. Too bad every street whore doesn't have a mentally handicapped son or daughter to rough up or eat their pimps. Camo Blamo had a deep, intrinsic response to the story, sending him far back into his squalid, pimping past and reassuring him that he'd made the right decision and leaving all that behind him. We're proud of you, Camo. We're also out of time for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can share it all that you like. We rely on your generous donations to keep going, so click on the donate button on our main page, www.drabblecast.org, to help us out. Tune in next week for something different. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marshman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to cash out while you can. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Uh Uh-uh. Not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often?